This morning we're going to continue in a little series that I felt that we desperately had need of concerning the ministry of prayer. Um, how, how many of you, if, if you're a homeowner, there's a real question. I know there's great, there's great financial reasons to be a homeowner and there's great blessing in being a homeowner, but there's also a curse in being a homeowner. And lately I've sort of complained a bit about the curse of being a homeowner. It's like you own this stuff. And so when it breaks, <laughs> you got to fix it. And sometimes you just can't afford to go hire a professional. So you get to be the amateur turned pro. And I, that's me. That's me around the house. I'm sure you play the same role in your home if you own something. And I've I got quite a resume going on right now. Um, <laughs> I have, just in the last several months, I have fixed washer, dryer, dishwasher, uh, air conditioning equipment, toilet, plumbing, coffee maker. I tried to fix a coffee maker. It didn't. It didn't work out. And, it, of course, that was the one piece of equipment that mattered the most to me. <laughs> and, and it is still sitting dead beyond my ability to fix it. I'm even on the hook right now to fix a woman's shoe. I'm going to be <laughs> fixing a woman's shoe here in the next day or so. Um, after the professional shoe guy said he couldn't fix it, I'm going to now step in <laughs> and fix it. <laughs> uh, but, you know, part, partly my engineering background as well as my propensity to follow directions. I have to just tell you, you know, there's just something, this is the way I'm wired. If my kids open the cereal box from the wrong end, I'm bothered by that. It's like somebody designed this box a certain way. Open it correctly. You know, you, this flap doesn't go back together now. You've wasted the design. <clears throat> when, I, when I get something, <laughs> let you, letting you in on my compulsive behaviors here. When I, when I get something, some kind of gadget, and you put it together, it came with directions. You should read them. I know a lot of you don't, do you? You just open the box up, set the directions aside, and then start using it. Well, in the directions is this other little really important feature. It's in the back. It's called the troubleshooting guide. Right? <clears throat> well, when something breaks, you go through this series of steps to troubleshoot it. And if you're a smart troubleshooter, you don't start with, like, brain surgery as the first thing to go after. You don't start at the hardest part of what might be broken. You start with the really simple things. And you see, okay, is it this? Is it this? Before I take this thing completely apart, is it plugged in? You know, it has, if you stick to the troubleshooting guy, you know, it's got real simple stuff on that. Like, is it plugged in? And the next question, is it on? You know, if you don't read the troubleshooting guy, you might start with, let me just take this thing completely apart. You didn't need to do all that. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but Christianity sometimes needs some troubleshooting. Right? Sometimes it just doesn't seem to be working right in categories that matter to us. And whether it's just emotionally, I just don't feel like things are going right emotionally for me right now, or relationally, your marriage might be having some difficulties in it. You may be struggling through some issues of purity or contentment in your life. And I think the tendency for too many Christians is to start fixing things, perhaps in the wrong place. We want to start with something really complex. We, we want to go to a seminar. We want, we want to see a counselor. 
Right? We want to make an appointment and get somebody to tell us some deep hidden element. We want to do hypnosis and find out our past and unlock some mystery here. And it's almost as though we don't want to start in the most basic of starting places. That for every Christian, this, this would be critical to starting your troubleshooting guide through your issues in life. And it would be in this realm of the topic we're talking about this morning. I think there aren't more basic places to start figuring out what's going wrong in life than with my interaction with the Word of God and prayer. And that's, this is as simple as Christianity gets, isn't it? We're not, we're not talking in times. We're not into eschatology here. We're not trying to figure out the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. We're not in that realm here. We're just talking, reading the Bible, and praying. Now, how many of us know we move on too quickly from that? We, we want to get into really deep stuff. We want to get a shot at the deep theological issues. How about just study the Word of God and prayer? Right? And if Christianity is a gadget, study of the Word of God and prayer are the black wire and the red wire. Right? There they are. Study of the Word of God and prayer. So when you go to figure out... Why is my life in the shape that it's in? Why are things not working? Why, why do I feel this way? You might just want to look at those two wires first and find out, are they connected? Amen. Now listen, this morning, I don't assume everybody here, just because it's a church and we know many folks, I don't assume everybody here really is even genuinely connected to God. It may be that the issues going on in your life are because you, you, could, you could have religion but not have God in your life. You could know things about religion and morality and living a, a decent life. You can call that Christianity, but that may really not have anything to do with whether you personally are connected to God. You personally, not your family, not the, the city and the culture that you're a part of and the religion you grew up in, but you personally is God in your life? Are you genuinely saved? Right? Do, the, do the black and red wires connect to God? Right? So there's a connection point in which what we're, what we're seeking to know in life from the Word of God is about God. And prayer is about God. It connects us to God. That's why it's the most basic thing you're ever going to do. I mean, I, some of the guys, I love some of their thoughts. I don't chase them all around. But you know, guys like J.C. Ryle think, man, prayer... Prayer is the thing that connects you to God, even more so than the Word of God. If you never pray, you can't connect with God. You know, lots of people read the Bible. But they don't pray, they don't connect with God, you don't know Him. So there's an ask, a question to be answered. Am I connected to God? Okay, so there's trouble in my life. Okay, am I connected to God? Yeah, I, I really think I am. I remember that point where I came into a relationship with Christ and I was saved. And God began to work in my life. And I'm still having some issues here. Okay, well, all right, trace the wire out now and find out, is it... Is it connected to you correctly? Are these wires from God? This is God's connection to you. Prayer and the Word of God. God's connection points to you. Do you have a break in the wire somewhere? Are they just the ends just kind of got a little bit too much of this going on with them and they've kind of come loose? And now you, when you take some parts apart, you, you're, not, you're not getting any power in your life. Now, somehow, we have thought the gadget still works, whether or not the red and the black wire are connected, right? I mean, if you're troubleshooting this thing and you come across these wires aren't connected, I bet no one would say, oh, well, I bet it still works. I bet the blender still works. It still works. Honey, 
You know, that's the thing about, you know, you can have it, you cannot have it. You know, the blender still works. You don't operate anything in your life that way, except for prayer, except for the Christian life. You know, we, we think it still operates correctly, even if the black and the red wires are not connected. Or they're frayed and there's barely little sparks are coming out of them and just a little bit of juice is flowing through them. We still think this thing's going to operate right. It's not. You know, last week we, we opened this series up by talking to mothers and applying specifically to mothers this, this revelation. The, the ministry of motherhood. If you, you, know, you troubleshoot that thing and you probably, if you have children, you're troubleshooting it a lot. It probably feels like it's broken all the time. Well, you need to check and see. Is the ministry of the word and prayer connected to what you're doing as a mother? How you're living as a mother? How you are as a mother? Now, this is true not just for mothers, though. It's true for the dads that are here. It's true for every single person that's here. It's true for every person who's working a job. Every aspect of you just managing who you are, managing your emotions and the way in which you live and think. Whoever you are, whatever you're doing in this moment, the trouble that may be going on in your life may not lie way over there with some deep concept. It may be that the wires aren't connected. Listen, you cannot, you cannot do Christianity without the Word of God in prayer. You can't do it. Stop trying. It doesn't work. And it's very misleading because I'm trying to do this Christianity thing and it just, it's so frustrating and I, I feel this way and I'm failing at this and this, and I feel condemned and I'm, I'm walking in relationships aren't working. All this mess because we haven't connected to the most basic of things in the Christian life. The Word of God and prayer. Now my emphasis this morning is on the Word of God. And we introduced this title last week. Do we have our cool slide that... Eric did this. is our cool new slide. The prayer catalyst. Pray. Because prayer changes things. Where we said last week, here's your chemistry lesson again this week. Those of you who slept through chemistry, you're glad you get a chance to relearn these things. A catalyst is something that makes a change happen. Or it brings about an event. That's what a catalyst is. Now, a chemistry experiment... We said last week, most simple of chemical reactions that we can see this in is, is to fill a room with hydrogen and oxygen. Fill a room with hydrogen, and you have hydrogen and oxygen floating around in the room as gases. And if you introduce this, this catalyst of heat in a particular way into that room, there's going to be a reaction that happens and a change is going to occur. And these two separate entities are now going to mysteriously join one another and become something different. Water is going to emerge. H2O is going to come from that. But, as we're going to learn today, if you leave hydrogen and oxygen alone and you don't introduce a catalyst to them, they just will hang out as hydrogen and oxygen. There's not going to be a change. So there's certain things that need a catalyst to bring about a change. So we want to highlight this issue. Prayer is a catalyst that changes things. When you inject prayer into a situation, it, it brings about a reaction. It brings about things. It changes things. Wayne Grudem, 
very provoking thought in your outline says, if we were really convinced that prayer changes the way God acts and that God brings about remarkable changes in the world in response to prayer, as Scripture repeatedly teaches that He does, then we would pray much more than we do. If we pray little, listen, if we pray little, it is probably because we do not really believe that prayer accomplishes much at all. I mean, now listen, the proof is in the pudding. It's not in what we say in this category. It's in what we do. If we pray little, right now, quick survey, the eyes of the Lord are going to and fro throughout the auditorium, finding those who pray little. Do you pray little? If you do, why? Well, if you really think it through, you, you have to get on the bad end of this quote. If you thought it really did avail much and it accomplished all kinds of things, what, you got nothing going on in your life? You got nobody you care about? You got no future that you're interested in? Is, is that your situation? Well, then I understand. Why pray? There ain't nothing meaningful for you going on. But that's not true for anybody here. We care about so many things, so many people. But why am I not praying then? Because we really don't make it, think it'll make a difference. Right, this is a two-edged sword. One, we don't think it'll make a difference in a positive sense. And if we neglect it, we don't think it will make a difference in a negative sense either. I mean, if I could guarantee you that if you don't get on your knees and pray this week, your world is going to disastrously fall to pieces in 30 days. And I could convince you of that. I guarantee you'd pray this week, wouldn't you? But the reality is we think life will go on. Whatever is right now will continue in some state and it probably won't be all that bad. Life will be fine if I don't pray and the things that needed to happen will probably happen anyway. Right? Not the case. Question, does prayer change things? And last week... We, we, we looked at how prayer changes. One, it, it changes the one who prays, which I think is the place to start. Prayer itself has an effect on us when we pray, when we really pray, not when we hoist up some five-minute checklist deal. But when we really get in the presence of God and begin to interact with Him by the Spirit and we're praying, prayer has an effect on us. And then it begins to affect the way in which we pray. Right, look at this thought. I didn't put all this in your outline, but it, this, this is a... a segment from an article that's available to you, Prayer, the Forerunner of Mercy, uh, by Charles Spurgeon. Th- this, uh, I, was, I was tempted to read this in place of preaching to you today. This is one of the most outstanding articles, 18 pages of gold. You want to learn how to pray? You want to learn the, the elements of prayer that inform why you pray and how you pray? Right here. It's available somewhere out there. Pick up a copy. Listen to this thought from Mr. Spurgeon. He says, often prayer itself gives the mercy. You're full of fear and sorrow. You want comfort. God says pray and you shall get it. And the reason is because prayer is of itself a comforting exercise. You go forth in prayer and pray to God to direct you. Are you aware that your very prayer will frequently of itself furnish you with the answer? For while the mind is absorbed in thinking over the matter and in a praying 
concerning the matter, it is just in the likeliest state to suggest to itself the course which is proper. For whilst in prayer, I am spreading all the circumstances before God. I'm like a warrior surveying the battlefield. And when I rise, I know the state of affairs and know how to act. Often thus, you see, prayer gives the very thing we ask for in itself. Oh, that's, that's so helpful. See, there's, there's an engaging of prayer. This, this is why reading about prayer isn't sufficient. It's not enough for us to have these great... It's not enough for you to hear the message today about the importance of prayer in your life. Until you actually pray, pray when you pray, it has an effect on you. Something gets communicated to you. There's a realm of faith that comes to you. You begin to change. And a circumstance that needs you to be different in it brings a different Keith into that arena. How did that happen? By me reading about the concept of prayer? No, it happened as the wires connected. And God's connection point and access into my life began to have a flow and a current began to flow and an exchange took place and I was being affected by it and faith began to change. Revelation from God came to me that was specific and unique to that circumstance. Specific and unique to me and what's going on in me and what's not going on in me. And I begin to be a different person and I begin to see that circumstance differently. Revelation from God began to show me details about that that were previously overlooked and not taken into account. Prayer itself changes the one who prays. Now today I want to consider how the effect of prayer is on the things that we're praying about. How does prayer affect the things that we're praying about? Now go back to James with me. Last week we started with James and James highlighted the fact that in every circumstance James is saying pray. Any of you suffering, pray. Any of you cheerful and rejoicing, Sing praise to God. Any of you sick, call for others to praise. Your sin will deal with the sin and pray. So in every aspect of our life, James is mandating prayer needs to be inserted. So everything common to you and to me has to be accompanied by prayer in God's plan. Look in verse 16. Let's pick up a little more detail from what James says. James 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another... And pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, right? The prayer of the righteous, it accomplishes much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Right, why, why pray? James, why in every circumstance pray? Right, this is not a rocket science statement. This is a very simple statement. Pray because prayer changes things. That's why. Pray because when you pray, it has an effect. It brings about an effect. Prayer affects things. That's why you pray. For example, and he takes us into the realm of Elijah's life as an example for us to learn from. Now, if you were to look, and you can go back and visit with me. This morning, I, I didn't put a lot of verses in your outline, but I welcome you to peruse some scripture with me. So, if you're confined in the Old Testament, 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 17 is the story of, of 
Elijah praying, the day in which Elijah prays and brings about a drought for three and a half years as a result of his prayers. Now here's the situation for Elijah. Elijah is located in that part of the world we know as Palestine, the area of of the nation of Israel, the promised land there in Canaan. God brought them into that land. It was part of his purpose. And so we're, we're about 500 years after they have come into the land, approximately, when Elijah is on the scene. And, and here's what's happening. In this setting, remember, before they went into the land, going back almost 500 years, actually a little more than that, there's a gathering with God's people before they go into the land, before they cross the Jordan. This is where we get the book of Deuteronomy from. Deuteronomy sounds just like, didn't I just read that in a few books earlier? This all looks familiar. It's because Deuteronomy was rehearsing again the law that God had given at Sinai. So some years have gone by. They've wandered in the wilderness, remember, for 40 years. Now they're on the verge of the Jordan River. And the Deuteronomy is God rehearsing again. He's telling them again. And he gives them some warnings. And he gives them some insights. You're about to go into this land. And he actually, what he gives them is lessons in worldliness. Right, let me get a plug in for the book that's your being encouraged to read. Never going to miss an opportunity to plug what we're reading. He gives lessons in worldliness and he warns them. You go back and you read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God's warning them. He says, listen, you're about to come into a land that's fruitful, abundant, fun, great. It's the promised land. I wanted you to live here. God doesn't say, hey, 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 here's the remedy. Here's the remedy for avoiding problems. Don't go into the land, guys. There's, there's, There's too much risk. Don't go in. Now, interesting that it's the promised land with milk and honey and all these things, these cities that you didn't build and these wells that you didn't have to go through the sweat and toil of digging. You're going to walk in. It's going to be water fountains everywhere. Now, listen, that meant something to these guys. It's going to be great. And with the greatness and with all the pleasure that's there is going to come a wave of temptation into your life. Therefore, I'm reconsidering and I don't want you to go. Interesting that God does not choose to spare his people from the temptations that awaited them in the land of promise. It'd be very informing, right? I don't want to get off on this, but it'd be very informing for the church to realize that. Right? That the the way to deal with some things in God's economy is not to prohibit them. God doesn't put a wall up and a fence up around the promised land and say, Because there's temptation in that land, you will not enter. He says, No, you're going in, but I want you to be aware. That in that land, there will be many temptations. And there will be people and there will be ways in which they live. And there will be idols. And your battle will be that you don't forget me. I'm the God who gave you this. I'm the God who brought you here. You're going to fight a war in your own heart to keep me in your life. That's the warning from God. Now, the situation unravels. And 500 years later... There's been quite a bit of wandering of God's people. Quite a bit of God's people not heeding the warnings of God. Quite a bit of God's people not guarding their own hearts from the idolatry that they so easily would be prone to, that God warned them about. And listen, God could warn us equally as well. Welcome to the land of candy. You live in a giant theme park bordered by the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean. That's what you live in. America is, is it's, it's like a theme park. It's like an amusement center 
We create more and more and more stuff to occupy our lives, entertain us. Be careful, God would say, as you're crossing the Atlantic. Be careful that when you get into that land with all the stuff and the I this and the TV that and the Facebook and whatever it is that's going to fill up your life, be careful that in that moment you don't forget me. Oh God, does, this, does the church today need to hear that? Who? In a huge way. But for Elijah, kings like Ahab, if you back up from 1 Kings 17, you get a little bit of a resume on Ahab. The 38th year, in verse 29, it says, The 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. This passage is going to go on and tell you, verse 32, he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So they've they've gone awry. They've gone bad. The people of God have gone bad. They've gone off into idolatry. Now, if you go back to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 28, where God was rehearsing, When you go into the land, be careful that you don't forget about me. He also said, now listen, if you'll walk in obedience, I'm I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be for you. I'm going to be a blessing to you. I'm going to guard you front and rear. I'm going to be against those who are against you. I'm going to bless you. But if you do not keep me as God in your hearts and you serve idols and you begin to be disobedient, I will begin to curse you. I don't know if this is kosher to preach in the modern setting of who God is. People don't have a God who would ever do that. God would never do that. Well, you've got a lot of Bible to tear out. A lot of Bible to tear out. Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today. Now, you guys who traffic through Ezekiel 36, do you hear something? Do you hear some language in that? You will be careful to do... Right? And then God in the New Covenant says, there's coming a day when I'm going to put my spirit within you and you will be careful to do. Right? This is God doing one day what these folks didn't do. You, that I command you today. Then, all, if you don't do that, all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And he begins to elaborate all these curses that would come into their life. If you skip down to verse 22, it says, The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever, inflammation, fiery heat and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. And the heavens, verse 23, and the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder from heaven. Dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. If you've been to the orphanage, you know a little bit about what this scene looks like. You ever been in a dust storm? Out in the West, it, it is intimidating. It is massive. First time Gene and I, I think, traveled out there to meet the lady who was running the orphanage years and years ago. We, you know, I'm, I'm from Southeast Louisiana, right? We're driving in the car on the way to the meeting, and I'm thinking, wow, look at the fog. <laughs> you know, this is massively smart, isn't it? I mean, you're in a desert, dude. Fog needs humidity. Well, 
that's all I've ever seen is when you look up at the, at the street lights and you can barely see them, fog does that, right? We're in the meeting, we're sitting inside someone's house and they're passing notes out. And, you know, five minutes after I get them, I notice that there's this coating of sand all over the top of the notes. I'm, I'm wiping it off and 15 minutes later, it's there again. I'm like, what on earth is this? There was a sandstorm that was brewing and going on while we were there. And so this description, you know, powder from heaven, that's what it looks like. It's like a wall that comes at you. And you can see it coming from across the desert. It's coming, and it goes all the way up to the sky. And that's what Deuteronomy foresaw. So there would be a day where that's what it would look like. Now, now here's what I want to draw your attention to. There exists in this moment a chemical reaction about to occur. You have the sinfulness of God's people who have gone wayward. They're serving idols at prolific scales. And you have the promise of God that the day in which you do that, I'm going to bring a curse on you that's going to look like the heavens are shut up and there's dust falling from the sky. Now, those are the reactants. They are hydrogen and oxygen and they are sitting in the same room together. But they're not doing anything until the man of God prays. See, James doesn't highlight for us that. You know, there was this time when the people of God went astray and a drought came. No, that's not what he highlights, does he? He highlights that a man prayed and a drought came. That's what he connects. And these things have been in the room together for a while. It's not until prayer gets injected into that moment where the drought comes. For three and a half years. And it's not again until prayer gets injected into that moment that the drought comes to an end. And you see something here of how God manages his universe. God has established and chosen that prayer would be part of how God brings about his purposes on the earth. Until Elijah prays, these events don't happen. Look at what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, prayer then is the prelude of mercy. For very often, it is the cause of the blessing. That is to say, it is a part cause. The mercy of God being the great first cause, prayer is often the secondary agency whereby the blessing is brought down. Now, let me just say this, because, you know, I put a quote in here where Charles Spurgeon is highlighting the mercy of God. This is the mercy of God. Well, do you see a three and a half year doubt, drought? where powder's coming down from heaven rather than... Can you imagine shutting the water off for three and a half years in a, in a place that doesn't get a lot of rainfall and the water's going to be shut off for three and a half years? I mean, do you understand how many things are dying everywhere for three and a half years? You're walking by carcasses of animals all over the place. This struggle to survive. And that's, that was a good thing? Elijah prayed and... And that's how the prayer got answered. That's a good thing? Yes. It's always a good thing when God does whatever he has to do to break the stronghold of idolatry in our lives. That's a very good thing. He prayed down the mercy of God. That's what he did. See, what would not have been merciful on God's part, because up to this point, the surprise is that it stopped raining, that it no longer rained. It must have been raining up until that point. They must have got some element of rain until he prays. And in the midst of a people who have gone wayward, whose hearts are not after God, 
And Elijah describes him. Remember, Elijah's a little hyperbolic here. You know, there's nobody faithful, God, but me. I'm the only one, and they're all out to kill me. Right? Remember when he when he has the great showdown on Mount Carmel? The prophets of Baal show up and he challenges them. And he turns to the people. Now remember, the, the people, the, the people aren't the idolaters in the land. The people are the people of God. And he says, How long, how long will you hesitate between two options? If God is God, then serve God. If Baal is God, then serve Baal. How long will you do that? He's speaking to the people of God in this. So here's the condition of this circumstance. The people of God have given themselves to idolatry. And it's the mercy of God that God comes along and says, I'm going to shut all the water off. I'm going to make your life turn upside down. See, how many of us are praying and asking for God to bring blessing in the midst of idolatry? You with me? We've got stuff going on in our world, stuff going on in our country, stuff going on in our own lives that's idolatrous. But we're just praying for God to slide the visa card one more time, God. Just bring one more blessing, God. That's our prayer life. God says, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> what needs to come into your life is powder falling from the sky. That's what needs to happen in your life. And it's my mercy that I would do that to you. That I would turn your attention. I would bring the bitterness of idolatry into your reality in such a way that you would see. You want to serve Baal? You think Baal's the one who brings you these blessings into your life? Here, have Baal. Baal's in charge. God just promoted Baal. Baal's in charge of the rain for the next three and a half years. Here you go. Serve him. You want him? You got him. Baal doesn't even exist. You base your life and put your hope in Baal. He cannot deliver you. He doesn't exist. He's a false god. But you want him, you got him. And what happened in their life? They got nothing. I bet at the end of the three and a half years, they got some clarity on who Baal was and who he wasn't, didn't they? (laughs) Apparently, because they thought Baal was in charge of the water. They did. Apparently, Baal ain't in charge of nothing. Listen, I don't know what your Baal is in your life, but I, I know you got one, two. If you live in America, you probably got several. Got lots of things that our, our temptation is to put our hope in that idol. When you start praying about that thing, don't be surprised if God decides to shut the spigot off. And that very issue, an area in your life that you set your hope in, all of a sudden becomes dry, dry, dry. That's not God being mean. Don't we have some goofy interpretation going on? Here God's trying to rescue me from idolatry, but if he won't answer my prayer about being further idolatrous, then God's mean. I don't serve a God like that. Well, no, God is not like that. God in his mercy is rescuing you from that which is not life at all and keeping you from wasting any more years. If it takes God three and a half years to keep you from wasting the rest of your life, then God's done you a favor even if it's the most bitter, dry, dust-eaten experience you've ever had in your life. And maybe God answering your prayer. Let me move through some thoughts here. The consistent testimony of Scripture is that prayer is a catalyst that changes things. When Elijah prayed, things changed all of a sudden, drastically changed. But this would be true all over Scripture. I'm going to move through these quickly. Moses at Mount Sinai. 
Exodus 32. Idolatry in the heart of God's people has always been a problem. They come to Sinai. They've rescued out of Egypt. God says, I've got a plan for you. You're going to be my people. Yes, we want to be your people. You want to be in covenant with me? Yes, we want to be in covenant with you. Do whatever I tell you. Yes, we'll do whatever we tell you. Moses goes back up on the mountain for 40 days. A few days too long. People decide. He's gone too long. We need, we need a God to lead us. And so they create the golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai. Verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, go down for your, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Interesting that God says, these are your people, Moses. <laughs> They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, let me alone, Moses, leave me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. All right, now th- here's the ingredients. The ingredients are getting on the table here. God says, I'm going to wipe them all out. In my righteousness, what they have done deserves that. And in my righteousness, I'm going to wipe them all out and I'm going to start over with you, Moses. And I will raise up from you, like I did with Noah, I'll do it with you. And I'll raise up from you a people. In that moment, Moses prays. Verse 11, but Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? (laughs) Moses reminds him there, your people? Whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a, a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians now, now learn something here? This is what prayer sounds like. It, prayers, it sounds like you're building a case. It sounds like you convincing God. It sounds like you've been to law school. and You are presenting a, a brief before God. Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore, God, you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of, bringing on his people. Do you see the reactance here? Present always has been the mercy of God is present in the room. God would be merciful. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. That's present because God is present. Along with that is the testimony of God's great name that Moses is greatly concerned about is present in the room. The Egyptians will say, you rescued these people just to bring them out and slaughter them, God. It's your name ultimately that is on the line here. And into that, Moses injects prayer. And these things come together and the outcome changes from what could have been to what is. Right? It, it's going to tweak your mind to start thinking, well, what if Moses hadn't prayed? And I can't answer that one. Turn to Second Chronicles. Turn over several books, Second Chronicles to a king named Jehoshaphat, who is a contemporary, by the way, of King Ahab. Second Chronicles chapter 20, Jehoshaphat, who is king of Judah, finds himself in a bind, 
There are three nations that have allied themselves together. And he gets word one day, they've all come together to come against us. They're on their way. Verse 3. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. Right? Not only does he pray, but he asks others to pray as well. Right? That's where he goes with this. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord before the new court, and said, Oh, Lord, God of our fathers, you are not, are you not, God in heaven. You rule over all the kingdoms. You can learn from these prayers. You want to learn how to pray? Learn from these prayers. And he prays and he seeks God for the outcome of what's about to occur. And when we read to the end of the story, we find out that these three nations do not destroy them. God brings confusion into their camp and they actually end up going to war apart from the people of Israel. And they turn on each other and they kill each other and they wipe themselves out. Why? Because Jehoshaphat called a prayer meeting. That's why. Because into that situation of being severely outnumbered by three against one, Jehoshaphat injected prayer into that moment. And the situation changed as a result. What about Daniel's prayer? This one's, this one's an ex- extremely important. Daniel, turn to Daniel chapter 9, because it, it sort of helps us to think theologically about why it is that we pray. Daniel 9. Verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now, when you observe Daniel's pattern of prayer, it is extremely helpful. What is he doing here? He's just connecting the black wire. He's reading the Bible. He's reading Jeremiah. The scriptures are being read by Daniel. And in that exchange, remember, Daniel is in exile in Babylon. They've been pulled out of the the land of promise, and they're not in the land of promise. Now they're in exile in Babylon. And Daniel is sitting in exile, and he's reading the scriptures in Jeremiah. And into his situation comes revelation, right? That's what the Bible does for us. It brings revelation, and in that revelation, we begin to pray differently. So Daniel gets a revelation that Jeremiah spoke of this event and explained to us that God's intention was that we would go into captivity for 70 years. He starts figuring things up and he realizes we're right at the end. The captivity is almost over. Now, what would you do in that moment? Right, you are, you ha- here you have God's revealed will. The prophet has made clear 70 years and you're done. Throw a party, I guess, right? Start packing. Tell everybody, listen, you know, don't put down any more roots here, guys. We're leaving. In just a couple years or a few days, however close he was. What what does Daniel do? Very informing. Then, verse 3, Then 
I turned my face to the Lord, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord, my God, and made confession, saying, Oh, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned. And He begins to repent for the people. We've acted wickedly. We've rebelled. In verse 7, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. Verse 8, To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, our princes, our fathers. And he goes on and he elaborates over and over again about all the sin that we brought to the table here. And he prays, verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem, and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, stop. He just read. Seventy years and it's over. Why is he praying that God would stop the desolations in Jerusalem? You just read that. For 70 years, the desolations would come to Jerusalem and you would be in exile. And in its 70 years, it's over, Daniel. And when he gets the revelation from the word, then he prays. He prays as though his prayer matters, doesn't it? I need to pray for this to come to pass. Oh, God, do this. God, don't count against us what we brought to the table. Do it for your own sake. And he goes on and he argues with God the next several verses. God, for the sake of your name, for the greatness of your name, God, do this. Now, isn't this interesting? But here's the, the chemical equation here. The revealed will of God and the testimony of God's great name. The revealed will of God in Jeremiah, from the word of God, informs Daniel how to pray. And the testimony of God's great name sit in the room together, awaiting the man of prayer to inject into that situation prayer. And God hears. And in 70 years, it is over. And God's purpose comes into fruition. And his will continues. Listen, this is, this is very informing, very informing for Daniel to pray the way he prays. This informs you and me and how we pray. Right, look, Ezra, go back to Ezra. I, mean, I could do this for quite a while. I mean, how many examples could we give of prayer meetings that produced an effect? Ezra chapter 8. Ezra is, is leading people after... You know, Daniel's prayed. Now, okay, now, now there's groups of people that are going back from Babylon to Jerusalem. They're returning. And in that return, right now, isn't it God's will that they would return? Everybody with me? It's God's will that they would return, right? Seventy years and you'd be in exile. And God doesn't say, and then I'm going to wipe you out and there will be none of you to return. No, they're, they're going to return after 70 years. You're going to come back. So Daniel knows that and, and inspires his prayer. Ezra knows that and now he's about to return. And he's leading a group back and they're departing from the land of Babylon. And it says in verse 21, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. 
since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So, you know, king, we won't need a police escort. Thanks, but we don't need it. Verse 23. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Right? Into the circumstance of traveling across the desert where there'd be hostile bands of individuals, there'd be physical and health risks that were going to be taken. Although Ezra knew it was the will of God for his people to return, he calls a prayer meeting as they set out on the voyage to pray together and to humble themselves and to receive from God. And God hears and they arrive. Into that moment, prayer has been injected. Now, listen, if God's intention is to do these things and he reveals himself as the God who has authored eternity and events that come to pass are going to come to pass because God's the author of them and he has set the stage for the future way back in the past. If all those things are true, then why are we praying? Because what we see in Daniel, what we see in Jehoshaphat, what we see in Ezra, what we see in Moses, what we see in Moses and all of these guys is what God has revealed to us about why we pray. Not our philosophical question about why we pray. What God has revealed in his word is what we know about why we pray. Do you understand what I'm saying? We come to this topic and it's as though we inform ourselves based on our experience and based on our, our, our logic that we bring. So, well, if God is, is sovereignly worked out a plan that's going to conclude the way he said it would, which is true, well, then what difference does it make whether we pray or not? And then all of a sudden we decide whether or not we will pray, whether or not the future depends on us praying, whether or not there are consequences to us not praying. We decide based on our human reasoning whether we're going to engage prayer or not. Rather than accepting the word of God has shown us how to pray and why we pray. And it's told us enough. Listen, this, this is the way it is. I mean, I, I put that in your outline. I can't get more deep than that. It is this way. <laughs> It simply is this way, whether or not we grasp the reasoning of why it is this way. John Calvin said, Therefore, we see that to us nothing is promised to be expected from the Lord, which we are not also bidden to ask of him in prayers. Words fail to explain how necessary prayer is and in how many ways the exercise of prayer is profitable. Very helpful from John Calvin. Ezekiel 36, verse 37, our famous Ezekiel 36 passages. Remember those? I will, I will, I will, I will do this, I will do that, I will, I will. Remember those? God adds another one. Thus says the Lord God, This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. Isn't that interesting? The God who said, I will. Then turns around and says, I will also let you ask me to do it. Let me read a, a chunky piece from Mr. Spurgeon. This is extremely, extremely helpful in our pattern of prayer. He's speaking of Ezekiel 36. He says, in reading the chapter, we have seen the great and exceeding precious promises which God had made to the favored nation of Israel. God, in this verse... We've just read, declares that though 
the promise was made, and though he would fulfill it, yet he would not fulfill it until his people asked him to do so. He would give them a spirit of prayer by which they should cry earnestly for the blessing. And then, when they should have cried aloud unto the living God, he would be pleased to answer them from heaven, his dwelling place. The word used here to express the idea of prayer is a suggestive one. I will yet for this be inquired by the house of Israel. Prayer then is inquiry. No man can pray aright unless he views prayer in that light. First, I inquire what the promise is. I turn to my Bible and I seek to find the promise whereby the thing which I desire to seek is certified to me as being a thing which God is willing to give. Isn't that exactly what Daniel did? Having inquired so far as that, I take that promise and on my bended knees I inquire of God whether he will fulfill his own promise. Isn't that what Moses did? He found the promise of God to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he said, God, did you not promise this? Did you not say that you would make them as numbered of the, of the sands on the seashore? God, didn't you make covenant with them? God, you said you'd do this. And he brings it back to God. I take to him his own word of covenant. And I say to him, oh, Lord, wilt thou not fulfill it? And wilt thou not fulfill it now? So that there again, prayer is inquiry. After prayer, I look out for the answer. I expect to be heard. And if I am not answered, I pray again. And my repeated prayers are but fresh inquiries. I expect the blessing to arrive. I go and inquire whether there is any tidings of its coming. I ask, and thus I say, Wilt thou answer me, O Lord? Wilt thou keep thy promise? Or wilt thou shut up thine ear because I misunderstand my own wants and mistake thy promise? Brethren, we must use inquiry in prayer and regard prayer as being first an inquiry for the promise and then on the strength of that promise, an inquiry for the fulfillment. We get the promise by inquiry and we get the fulfillment of it by again inquiring at God's hands. Now, a living demonstration of that is Elijah. He prays and shuts the heavens off. And then three and a half years later, and we'll look at this next week, three and a half years later, he's found on the top of the mountain praying that God would now bring rain. And the same man who prayed and such a prolific thing occurred to to that there would be no rain for three and a half years is now asking for the heavens to open up. And he prays the first time. And he does exactly what Mr. Spurgeon says here. He sends his, his servant Gehazi. And he says, go look. Go look and see. Is there any rain? Gehazi comes back and says, nothing. No rain. So he bends his knees again. He puts his head down and he prays and he cries out to God again. And then he sends his servant again. And he does this seven times. Seven times he prays. And the last time Gehazi comes back and he says, I see a little cloud coming up from the sea about the size of a man's fist. That's all Elijah needed. He takes off running. He knows. Get ready. (laughs) It's about to rain like you ain't never seen rain. But what he did was he prayed and he looked and he prayed and he looked and he prayed and he looked and he had some. He owned something from God. God's going to do this. And therefore, I will not let go of God. I will pray through this because he will do this. Spurge again says, Mark the fact the torrents of rain were the offspring of Elijah's faith and prayer. 
Wherever in Holy Writ you shall find the blessing, you shall find the prayer that went before it. And let me sharpen the other side of this sword. The negative observation. What happens when we don't pray? Does it make a difference when we pray? And does it make a difference when we don't pray? James 4 verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. Now there's further issues here in this passage, right? You ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your own pleasures and so you're not receiving in that vein either. But before we get to that, there's a reality that simply says you don't have that in your life because you don't ask. You just don't pray. You don't ask God to do it. Remember Ezekiel? I will let them inquire of me. I will let them ask me to do this. You don't have because you don't ask. Mark chapter 9, verse 28. This is very theologically informing as well. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Why could we not? This is, this is against the backdrop of failure. The disciples have gone out. They've been ministering to people in a variety of needs, one of them being demon-oppressed. There's demonic activity taking place in this boy's life. He goes mute. He foams at the mouth. He's writhing on the ground. The disciples come up seeking to cast a demon out of him, and they're not able to. Jesus comes up, solves the situation, casts a demon out with authority, leaves them scratching their heads. Why could, we, why could we not do this? And they finally get Jesus off on the side. What happened? Why, why could we not? Now listen, it's not as though they had never succeeded in this area, because other places before this tell us that they went out casting out demons, and amazing things were happening. But in this situation, they failed. And there's a lesson. That's always a great lesson to learn in failure. It's not always the easy, easiest lesson to learn, but, but we probably learn more profoundly in failure than we do in success. So these guys have failed. And they come to Jesus and they ask him. And here's his response. He said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And I, if you just read that and go on to the next verse, I think you missed something here. I'm pretty sure at this point, either they understood what Jesus was saying or they're looking at each other like going, duh. <laughs> okay, Jesus, tell us something we didn't know already. Do you think they didn't pray? What do you think they did? Do you think they walked up to this guy and broke sticks and danced on one foot and sprinkled dust on him? And, and then they came back and Jesus said, well, you know, that doesn't work with these kind. Oh, man, it's been working everywhere else we've been going. <laughs> No, they saw Jesus cast out demons. They knew how he did it. But something was missing in this situation, that this situation went beyond garden variety. It required something else that he was referring to as prayer. I think it has to do with the, the effect of prayer on our faith, the effect of prayer when we pray. Not in that moment, not as though, oh, in that moment we were supposed to pray for him. Oh. No, 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 no. I, I think the prayer that was in you in your life before you came to that moment. Your ministry, gentlemen, was deficient because you came into that moment not having been in the closet with God where you would have been affected and you would have been crying out to God and the exchange from God would have wired you differently and you'd have had a different element of faith and direction and capacity for that moment. That's what happened. Listen to John Calvin. He says, By this expression, Christ reproved the negligence of certain persons in order to inform them that it was not an ordinary faith which was required, 
For otherwise, they might have replied that they were not altogether destitute of faith. The meaning, therefore, is that it is not every kind of faith that will suffice. When we have to enter into a serious conflict with Satan, but that vigorous efforts are indispensably necessary. For the weakness of faith, he prescribes prayer as a remedy to which he adds fasting by way of an auxiliary. You are a feminine exorcist, he said, and seem as if you were engaged in a mock battle, got up for amusement. Oh my goodness, does that describe the prayer life that we have today? But you have to deal with a powerful adversary who will not yield till the battle has been fought out. Your faith must therefore be excited by prayer. And as you are slow and languid in prayer, you must resort to fasting as an assistance. Might there be circumstances in our lives that require vigorous efforts that are indispensably necessary in prayer? Listen, huh? how many of us are praying like that? Come on. How many of us know what it is to pray like that? Listen, we know we look on the church, and I do this as well. I look on the church, this church, the church, the body of Christ in America and parts of the world. And so kind of want to look on with a level of complaint. Why aren't things, and why aren't things, and why isn't that person, and why aren't these people, and why isn't there, why isn't there more and greater, and the move of God greater? Why isn't there? And then I look at the way I pray. Right, listen, ain't none of us got any permission to stand in the complaint line. If I'm praying some languid, weak prayer life that doesn't pray until it prays, that doesn't reach into heaven, that knows nothing about effectual, fervent prayer, listen, we get what we get, and don't anybody complain about it. Amen? That's the church you get. That's the church I get. God's call for a whole lot more than that. Listen, there's some, these are scary verses. Ezekiel 22, verse 30. I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. It's a day in which God said, I'm going to pour out my wrath upon the land because of the sin here. And I'm looking for somebody to pray. I'm looking for somebody to stand before me and give me cause not to do that. And I found no one. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. Does it matter whether we pray? It mattered so much for Samuel. For Samuel, Samuel says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. See, Prayer wasn't a category of option for Samuel. Samuel saw it as sin if he didn't. If I don't pray. Now listen, if the economy of God is God awaiting, God sitting on His throne awaiting, I'm waiting for people to pray for things. I've established a people who are going to have access to me. My house shall be called a house of prayer if God's waiting for this. And it's not occurring when Samuel, I can see why you consider prayerlessness as a sin. 
before God. Because God has revealed that he's in prayer in a certain way, awaiting us to inject it in the situations in people's lives. John Calvin says, therefore, they act excessive they, they act with excessive foolishness who call men's minds away from prayer. Babble that God's providence, standing guard over all things, is vainly importuned with our entreaties. Now, I, I purposely went after Mr. Calvin's thoughts on this. Because people, one, people are so poorly informed about who John Calvin really is. Right? Calvinism has this baggage that didn't get created by John Calvin created by people who probably have never even read John Calvin. Who would think, well, you know, Calvin, he's the dude who teaches so much about the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. And listen to what he says here. Listen to what he says. He says, that memorable saying of the psalm attests this, and to it many similar passages correspond. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears toward their prayers. This sentence commends the providence of God as yet not to omit the exercise of faith. And so both are true, that the keeper of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, and yet that he is inactive as if forgetting us when he sees us idle and mute. Wow. That's what Calvin thought about prayer. Apparently prayer is not an optional thing. Apparently for thinkers and for the Bible and who have thought biblically, prayer is not something that's optional for us to get to or not get to, to fit in when we can. There are positive achievements that are linked to prayer. There are negative elements that are linked to prayer. Now, let me close with a couple of thoughts here from guys in, in church history. Matt, you can prepare to come. I, I really haven't ventured outside of Scripture much, but let, let, me, let me walk us through church history here and listen to some men who were at the epicenter of incredible things that God did. Incredible outbreaks of God, like the Great Awakening that took place in this country and in Europe as well. Jonathan Edwards, who was very much at the center of the Great Awakening in the mid-1700s. He said, when God has something very great to accomplish for his church, it is his will that there should precede it the extraordinary prayer of his people. Spurgeon, again in that article that you have, or hopefully will have, Prayer, we assert, is the prelude of all mercies. Great prayer is the preface of great mercy. And in proportion to our prayer is the blessing that we may expect. In proportion to the prayerfulness of the church shall be its present success. Though its ultimate success is beyond the reach of hazard. In a way mysterious to us all. A.T. Pearson, who lived and wrote in a time when prayer was under a work of great revival, said there has never been a spiritual awakening in any country or locality that did not begin in united prayer. John Wesley, the incredible evangelist, said God does nothing except an answer to believing prayer. Listen, these, these are guys that knew something. The Bible reveals to us people that knew something about prayer. And in no way does prayer get treated as though it's an optional thing for us. Everywhere prayer is treated as though it really does avail much. 
it really does accomplish something. When he gets into a situation, it brings a change. And how helpful and informing for us to know that, that God has not put the universe on some kind of strange providential autopilot that we can just sit back and, and take the position that, well, whatever's going to happen in that category is just going to happen in that category. I mean, God has not allowed us to do that. Not from the Bible. Maybe from my own human reasonings because I can't understand how my prayers can contribute anything to the sovereign work that's already been accomplished by God. But yet God says, I will yet be entreated by my people to ask me for these things. Now listen. Uh, I preach this series to us. We've all managed to get in our building. But I believe God wants us to step into the future now. It's time, time to go into some categories that I don't even think you and I begin to understand all that God wants to do in and through us. But listen to me. If, if the black and the red wire aren't connected, we're going to be asking a lot of questions about why things don't work around here. Listen. Listen, I have, I have a concern for the body of Christ, um, the American body of Christ in particular that so, knows so little about praying. I'm concerned for its influence and effect on my own life and for yours. Listen, present in this gathering and present in our family of people who belong to this church, there are issues that aren't working. It's not working in your life, is it? It's not working. Come on. You got an appointment next week to come in and talk about it, don't you? It's not working. Whether we want to troubleshoot our kids or troubleshoot our spouse or troubleshoot something else, please do not step past troubleshooting this. Are the red wire and the black wire connected? They got frayed through use and neglect and stomped on and, oh, that one came loose. I, I didn't notice. I didn't notice. This is a little five-minute hoisting up something on the way to something else. I guess that's called something. Let's just not call it prayer. I don't think in any of these categories, anybody we've read from or anybody that has given us some insight from church history was talking about that in the category of prayer. Now, Gallup in his poll last week was talking about that as prayer. But these guys aren't talking about that as prayer. A little five-minute thing is your prayer life hanging by a thread. High voltage will not be traveling through that thread. It won't. And we're desperate to fix all these things in our life, whether it's evangelism in our community, or whether it's our marriage, or whatever it is. It ain't going to happen with any power unless the wires are connected. I'm, I'm not just trying to encourage this in us. I'm desperate to appeal to you. Spurgeon has an appeal in the last part of this article as a pastor. Where he interestingly talks about how he walks into a meeting. And almost, he almost despises it. I trust that's because he senses the weight of what it is that he is about to try and do. 
And how he is desperate to ask people to pray for him. That's how he ends this message, desperately asking people to pray. There is a future for us. It's an incredible future. There's a future for your family. There's a future for your walk. There's a future that desperately needs people who are going to pray and lay hold of God to see it come to pass. Let's not scratch our heads in the future wondering why, you know, we're doing this, we got this ministry, we got that thing going on. Why? 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 Well, let's troubleshoot why. You gotta connect the wires. You can't be a church, we can't be a people who don't find any time to get into the Word of God. So we have no idea what Jeremiah said. We don't know. We don't know 70 years. We don't know anything about that. We don't spend any time praying. We're not with God and God's not changing us. He's not changing the way we pray and he's not changing the things around us. But if we really were praying, there would be change. Now I want to ask you in your own life, and next week I'm going to to ask for folks to commit themselves. I'm going to ask for a band of people who will commit to being part of the prayer force in a very new way to make prayer an issue in their life, to make it their responsibility, to make it their ministry. I think everybody should be praying, but I think there should be some who are extraordinarily praying. But I got to ask you this, you know, it doesn't, this, this can't be the end of this message. This message needs to traffic into what has to happen in my life for this to become a reality. Really. Because I know all of us here have great intentions. We all want to pray. We just don't seem to get to it. Well, if prayer is vital, what has to happen? What things in my life aren't vital? That'd be a good place to start. What's not so important in my life? Maybe I have to nudge some of those things out of the way, minimize some of them. There's so many things, aren't there? In their room somewhere. I don't want to go down a list. I mean, it's very tempting. Just, you know, exchange things like Facebook for FaceTime, you know. FaceTime with God. You know, listen, I, I don't want to insult anybody here. But no one needs to know all the trivial drabble and stuff that's happening in your life like that. No one needs to know all that. I mean, do you understand people go to publishers they publish stories and they pay big bucks and they publish things and no one buys that book either you know Facebook it's like ooh free publishing one I don't know if anybody's reading it anyway two they don't need to know but the other people that do have access to that they desperately need to know God They desperately need to know what God is doing in and around their lives. See, we're sucking wind in our parenting, in our marriages, in our responsibilities, in our finances. But we don't pray. Hello? This can't work. Christianity doesn't work. It's a gadget that only works when there's power in it. We can't be content with the wires not connecting while so many other things are getting our attention. Somehow, in God's plan, He designed our lives to be a certain size and for prayer to be in it in a certain way. There's room for prayer. There's just not room for something else. 
Let's stand up together. Lord, I, I want us, I want us to leave here today disturbed. I don't want us to feel good. I don't want us to be at peace. I want us to be concerned. I want us to feel weight. I want to be troubled. Because I don't want to live in the day, Lord, in the future. I never hear you say, I looked for a man to stand before me and I found none. I want to find myself standing heart full of faith believing that you were telling the truth when you said the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous accomplishes much oh God that we would be a people who really believe that because if we really believe that we would pray much we would Lord, let us gather strength from these stories and these revelations in your word. Let us not gather weakness from our own experience. God, let us not gather from our very short personal history and cast aside the richness of your revelation. God, when your people prayed, enormous things happened. Amazing things happened. Things changed. People changed. Circumstances changed. Oh, they didn't change instantly. We can look at that next week. But God, they changed because you ordained that prayer would change things. God, reintroduce us to this kind of praying that we might find ourselves like little mad scientists seeking to inject prayer is that we've got this vial of power that if we can just inject it into that person's life or inject it into that circumstance or inject it into that ministry, we know, we know something's going to happen. Help us to connect the wires. In Jesus' name, amen.